So today we're going to be talking a little bit about the Sermon on the Mount. We're actually going to be talking about honor uh, and the importance of it in the Sermon on the Mount. So I would encourage you, if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to open them to Matthew chapter 5. We're not going to read this passage in advance. We're going to read it as we go, and we're going to be starting in verse 21. And as always, if you have a smartphone, you can open the Version Bible app, and you should be able to find an event near you, and you should be able to follow along that way. Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 21. In a few minutes, we'll be reading from them. I want to talk to you a little bit about labels, if I could. Uh, I hate labels. I'm not talking about the labels that are on food, although I do hate them because they lie. You know that, right? Three potato chips is not one serving size. That's a lie, right? Okay, we got that, right? Uh, but I guess, I don't know, maybe it's because I was redheaded when I was a kid. And a kid, I hated labels right out of the box. Like, oh, you're a redhead. You have this, that, you know, I, I just don't like labels at all. But in spite of the fact that I hate labels, and you probably hate labels too, if I were to give you a label and say, oh yeah, you're that person, you wouldn't like that. In spite of the fact that we hate labels, we use them all the time. We use them on each other. For example, we label generations. Boomer, <laughs> right? Buster, oh, that's not too popular. Millennial, right? Labels, we use them pretty consistently. Oh, you're from the East Coast. That's why you're from the West Coast. You're from the Middle Coast. You know, that's why those labels. We label cultures, sometimes by race, sometimes by wealth or affluence, sometimes by religion. And generally, I just don't like labels. However, there are a couple labels that I think it's been really helpful to me to be aware of them because it's helped me, as sociologists divide people into these groups, it's helped me to understand a little bit more about myself and a little bit more about God. And those labels are the labels honor, shame, and guilt, innocence. So people who study this sort of thing, they may tweak the labels, use them a little bit differently, but as I like to think of them, cultures tend to be either honor, shame focused or guilt, innocent focused. We as a Western culture, by that I mean America, Euro people, we are people who emphasize the guilt, innocence thing. We prize innocence. It's a virtue. And we punish guilt. You're going to pay because you did the crime. Eastern cultures, from the Middle East to the Far East, they tend to emphasize honor and shame. Now, if you think, I'm not sure I understand that exactly, think of the image you might have of an ancient samurai from Japan who commits seppuku. Seppuku is that thing where he has brought dishonor on himself or on his family. And he's required in a ceremony to sit there and to take his own sword and to open up his... Well, we'll stop right there. He ends his life right there. Sometimes he does that because it's a matter of shame due to cowardice. I acted as a coward and I have shame. Sometimes it's a matter of shame due to dishonesty. Sometimes a matter of shame due to failure sometimes due to rejection. Often warriors who came back from the battlefield and they had been defeated, but they managed to survive and came back, came back only to commit seppuku so that they could regain their honor for them and their family. Even women whose husbands had brought shame on themselves were sometimes expected to commit seppuku. Honor, shame. It's a big deal in some cultures. I want to suggest to you that it's maybe a bigger deal in our culture than we're aware of. Honor, shame. It shows up in Appalachia or Appalachia. Call it whatever you'd like. It shows up in our culture. Think Hatfields, McCoy. That's not a guilt-innocent thing, near as much as it is an honor, shame kind of thing. And I see it in myself. I want to demonstrate that to you by telling you a story. 
When I was in college, my wife and I were nearing graduation. We wanted to buy a good car because we figured we'd have to drive all over America before any church would hire me, right? So we wanted to buy a good car. So we went to one of those car dealerships in Atlanta that sells Fords and Toyotas and Dodge, everything. And we went in and thought, we're going we're to work a deal here. So we went into the car dealership. And remember, I'm college age, right? This is my first time in this game. And I went in and the price was more than I wanted to pay, naturally. So I kind of held up. I said, no, you, you need to do better than that. And so the salesman, he left the desk where we were seated and he went across the showroom floor and he went up this staircase into the Holy of Holies. And there he didn't meet with the divine one, right? And while he's up there, they're talking. They're probably talking about, hey, how are your kids doing? Pretty good. Yeah, give this guy $200 off. And then he comes back down and he comes, I got you $200 off. I said, yeah, let's try again. So he goes up and he gets a few more dollars off. And he goes up and he gets a few more dollars off. And I felt myself becoming angry. And I had no idea why. I didn't understand what it was then. But as I look back with my understanding of honor, shame cultures, I think I know why. Somehow or other, my college-aged mind found it demeaning that the man in the tower in the high place was inaccessible to me. And I had to talk to his menial Sorry, car salesman. I had to talk to his menial down here while he went up and interceded on my behalf. I just found that as a redneck Appalachian hillbilly guy who was 20-some years old. That was just demeaning. Now listen, anytime you feel belittled or anytime you feel someone did something to you that was demeaning or humiliating or took away your power, you're almost always dealing in the honor-shame world. Do you understand that? Second, and this is just crazy as I think about it, I felt offended that the price kept coming down. (laughs) Here's what it was. I felt like if I had just walked in there and said, I want that car, and he would he would have said, well, that's the price, I would have paid it, and there was several hundred, maybe a thousand dollars that I would have missed getting off. And I'm like... Boy, I could have been really ripped off here. I could have been scammed. And if I hadn't jumped through these hoops, I'd get ripped off. Okay, so there's two things to notice there. Anytime you feel like you might get scammed, honor shame is in play. And anytime you feel like someone made you jump through some hoops, honor shame is in play. And honor shame is so powerful I can't believe what I did. I said to Laurel, let's go. And I got up and walked out. And I drove back up to the little town I lived in, walked into the Ford dealership and paid about $500 more for the very same model car that I would have bought down there. That's how powerful honor shame is. And it's part of every culture. It's a big part of the kingdom. That's weird, huh? Honor shame is a part of the kingdom? It is. Much of what Jesus speaks about in the Sermon on the Mount can be tied to the concept of honor, specifically our need as men and women who are members of the kingdom to live honorably. And I want to help you see that today in these few verses we're going to look at. In chapter 5, verse 21, Jesus is actually, as he transitions in his sermon here, he's beginning to talk about a universal problem that humankind has. And it's the problem of comparing our behavior to some extreme kind of behavior over here. 
Listen as I read verse 21. You have heard it said, you have heard that it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Okay, there's the rule. Don't murder anyone. And I want to tell you, generally, that rule is pretty easy to keep. (laughs) I've managed to keep that all my life. Thursday night, the men were gathered together for men's group at Eric's house. We were sitting out in the yard. We were sitting around a fire, and there were, I don't know, maybe a dozen of us there or so. And I I said, let's just go around the, the circle, starting with the person on my left, and just share anything you have on your heart that you'd like us to pray about. How's your life going? And then someone will volunteer to pray for it. So we started with the first guy, and then we went to the next guy, and then we went to the next guy, and then we got to Bob. And I looked at Bob, and I said, so Bob, how's everything going in, in your life? How you been doing? And he says, well, I haven't killed anyone. <laughs> yeah, good job, Bob. We're proud of that. And I immediately interjected. You know what happens in men group, men's group stays in men's group, except this, because you just became a sermon illustration right now, Bob. Because it's just too good to leave alone. How you doing, Bob? I haven't killed anyone. Yeah, okay. Well, the sermon is from a passage of scripture where Jesus says, you've heard it said long ago, you shall not murder, but I tell you, anyone who's angry with his brother or sister will be subject to justice. And if you know Bob, you know why that was really funny at that moment in men's group. (laughs) You shall not murder. I can probably go my whole life and obey that command. I'm with Bob. I'm with Bob. I feel like I'm doing pretty good because I haven't killed people, even people that deserve to be killed. I haven't killed one of them, right? Yeah. But that doesn't mean my heart is in the right place, does it? Does that mean, because I haven't killed anyone, that I'm a person of honor? Do you know people who have failed to act with honor, but they haven't killed anyone? Of course you do. Of course you do. That guy who specializes in ranting and really gives it to the clerk in the store. Have you been behind him in the line? I have been him in the line. (laughs) He hasn't killed anyone. But he is not acting with honor. He's actually, when I'm doing it, when I have done it, because I don't do it anymore, but when I have done it, I am behaving shamefully. That is not the way of the kingdom. The kingdom isn't a matter of this external rule that's out there like, don't murder anyone. The kingdom is a matter of what's going on in your heart. Jesus is saying that, that the kingdom is a matter of the heart. It's not about what you pretend to be on the outside, It is who you are on the inside. That's why Jesus starts verse 22 with the words, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And some people might indicate Jesus is up in the ante here. You have heard it said by people long ago, you shall not matter, but I'm going to up the heat. I'm turning on the heat. I'm going to make the rules a little harder to follow. I don't think that's what he's doing at all. I have said that. I've actually preached that before. But in retrospect, I believe I was wrong. I don't think Jesus is turning up the heat. I think Jesus is turning our attention to something more deeply than our external behavior. He's warning us, don't pat yourself on the back because you're keeping the rules. Because the kingdom is about more than that. The kingdom is deeper than that. And you see this even more clearly as you continue in verse 22 when he says, again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, you can do all the research you want on the original language. Do that to your heart's content. Raka basically means a worthless fellow. And you know what fool means. What Jesus is actually saying here is that anger in your heart, the seed of which might move one to murder, is not the way of the kingdom. Do you hear that? 
Let me say it again. Anger in my heart, the seed of which might lead one to murder, is not the way of the kingdom. And there's no honor there. There is only shame there. Have you ever heard anyone recounting a conversation where they were in a conflict? And they say, I just let that guy know what I thought. And then they go on to tell you how they put that guy in his place. Man, I used to do that all the time. And we tell those stories because we feel like we've done something righteous, like we've won the cause of justice. Okay, listen, there's a time to let people know the truth. There's a time to let people know when they're wrong. There's a time to roll over the tables, so to speak. But I think those times are far and few between, and probably far less often than we realize. And if you are recounting a story like that, with a sense of victory, you are probably not acting in honor. It's not the way of the kingdom. Kingdom men and women are people of honor. Kingdom men and women actually treat relationships with honor. That's not what happens in our world, though. I mean, let me set up some contrast for you. Just follow this for a moment. In our society, people damage relationships by lying, and shame abounds. In the kingdom, the truth is told, and honor abounds. In our world, people poison relationships by feeding their anger, and shame abounds. In the kingdom, people are forgiving in relationships, and honor abounds. In our world, people paralyze relationships by holding grudges so the relationship can no longer move forward, and shame abounds. In the kingdom, people are gracious and show other people grace, and honor abounds. Jesus talks about how to do this in verse 23, indicating you really can't be at peace with God if you're at odds with others, at least not in the long haul. In verse 23, he says, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there, remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled with them, and then come and offer your gifts. You see, getting things squared away with your brother or sister makes things go a lot better with your father. And you've probably experienced this. When my spirit is stressed out, do you understand what I mean when I use that phrase? When my spirit is just stressed out because of a damaged relationship, it is hard for me to feel that I am at peace. And it's hard to be at peace with my father, God. The person Jesus mentions that has something against me, and I have something against them, that person is made in the image of God, made in his likeness. And I'm so angry with them. I'm having trouble presenting my gift at the altar. Wow. How can I choose to dishonor that which bears the image of God? I was uh, in college, freshman in college, maybe, maybe a sophomore, I don't remember. I was dating Laurel at the time, and some of you know this story. I, I can remember uh, I had pictures of her at my desk in my apartment where I had you know them tacked up on the wall. And I went home for the weekend, and my roommates all had a party. And when I came back, someone had taken a pen and given Laurel a mustache <laughs> and given her glasses and crossed her eyeballs and poked little thumbtacks into where her eyes were. And all that kind of stuff. They damaged the image of Laurel. That wasn't Laurel. That was something in her image, and they damaged it. And I was ready to hunt. 
I mean, I went to my roommates and said, who was here? I want a list. Because they damaged something in the image of Laurel. Are you getting the point? Humankind bears the image of God. And when I choose to have a relationship that, that is broken because I will not work to mend it. I'm not talking about relationships where you've tried and you've done all you can. In that case, the scripture says, as much as it depends on you, be at peace with all. I'm not talking about those relationships, but I'm talking about relationships where I choose to dishonor the one who is bearing the image of God. Then how can I worship God in spirit and truth when my heart is so divided and my spirit is so troubled? Good parents always want their kids to get along with other, one another, and God wants nothing less. In the kingdom, peace with one another and peace with God, they go hand in hand. And in the kingdom, relationships remain healthy when honor is in place. That's why in verse 25, Jesus says, settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Settle matters, he's saying. And that requires acting in honor. We can't do that. We can't do what Jesus is saying here. Settle matters matters if we're lying, if we're cheating, if we're conniving, if we're bullying, if we're manipulating, if we're acting in any shameful way. Those relationships will not be repaired. They will actually begin to decay. Ladies, I want to ask you to try an experiment today. I want to talk to you about decay and letting something decay and then finding out what, what comes of it. Without your husband's knowledge, I want you to take the mayonnaise out of the refrigerator today. I'd like you to set it out in the sun just for the rest of the day. Just set it there and let it get real nice and warm. Don't tell him. Then I want you to put it back into the refrigerator and I want you to see what happens when he puts it on his sandwich at lunch tomorrow. Would you do that? No, you wouldn't do that. Do not do that. The reason you wouldn't do that is because you know that when you put it out there and get it out of the refrigerated environment, you know that the bacteria can grow and it actually, in a sense, you could say it begins to decay. And when something begins to decay, it has a very good chance of poisoning whatever is involved with it. You get it? It's called food poisoning. When you, when you don't honor your relationships with others, you're allowing them to decay and you're allowing poison to spread. Jesus says, tend to the relationship. Treat that person with honor. Be personable to them. Act like a friend. Seek to understand them. Seek to know where they're coming from. Try to understand why they have a perspective that's different than yours. Be gentle. Be honest. Work together. Treat relationships with honor, because that is the way of the kingdom. Treating relationships with honor is actually paramount in the kingdom. And Jesus wraps this part of his Sermon on the Mount up with, with the sentence, truly I tell you, you will not get out of prison until you have paid the last penalty. In other words, there's just dire consequences to not treating relationships with honor. Honor shame. It is not just a samurai thing. It is not just an Eastern or Mid-Eastern thing. It is not just an Appalachian thing. It is actually a kingdom thing. It's huge in the kingdom. And while that's important, it can also be a little depressing 
that honor is such a big deal in the kingdom because you've probably noticed that a life of perfect honor is simply not within your grasp. Have you noticed that? I mean, when I hear the call to honor in the kingdom, if a pastor says, you should behave with honor, my mind immediately recalls incidents when I failed at that. I I think back to conversations with customer support where I kind of laid out the guy on the other end of the phone. Wish I could call him back and apologize. I can't. I'm stuck with shame. I recall shameful thoughts that I have not just had, but that I have entertained. What can I do about that? I remember arguments hmm, with others where I didn't behave honorably and even stretched the truth right into a lie so that I might look better. And the reason I can say these things in front of you is because you know that you have had the same experience, that a life of perfect honor is simply not within our grasp. And that which keeps me from despair is the thought that throughout the Sermon on the Mount, you find this golden thread. That Jesus, as he presents this truth in the Sermon on the Mount, is just stringing this thread of gold right through it, that if you were to spell it, it would be five letters. G-R-A-C-E. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, you hear Jesus speaking of humankind's need to find grace in God. Because you cannot live a life of perfect honor. You may think you're doing pretty well because I didn't kill anyone, right? But Jesus wants you to go deeper. And he wants you to see that you've failed at honor. And he wants you to see that your only hope is him. If you want to kind of visualize it in your mind, it's like, You know that honor is important. You don't like it when things are shameful in your life, but you can't deal with the honor and be perfectly honorable in your life. And you cry out to heaven and you say, God, I just can't do this. And when you do that, then heaven speaks back to you. God speaks back to you and says, you're right. You can't do this. That is why I am here. You need grace. You need someone to forgive you. You need someone to give you the good news to take you who are poor in spirit and say, yours is the kingdom of heaven and, and to proclaim freedom to you that feel as prisoners to your shame and, and to give you the, 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 the sight to know what is the honorable course and to be free of this oppression that comes with shame. And that's exactly what Jesus came to do. When Jesus is speaking, when he's speaking in Luke chapter 4, And telling why he is here, he takes a scroll and he opens it up and he reads these words and he says, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing today. It's about him. He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he means that both literally physically, and he means it spiritually as well. That he can provide freedom for you from the shame that you feel because of your failures. He can provide hope for you and give honor to you. He can set you free. If you failed at anything, and we all have, Christ can remove your shame. He took that shame when he died on the cross. And when you see your own failing and you look and say, I just can't, that is when the grace of God says, I know you can't. 
Trust me. I remove your guilt and I remove your shame. You carry the cross. All my shame. All my shame, Jesus. I trust you. I trust you. You see, Scripture teaches that honor, Jesus' honor, is actually transferred to us. If you were here last week or watched online last week or listened to the podcast, I spoke to you about how his righteousness is transferred on us. His righteous deeds. And his honor is given to us as well. He took our shame, all our shame. He took it without even wincing. Like, oh, I don't know if I want, I don't think I'm going to do that. He didn't take it because it was easy. He took it because it was necessary. The author of Hebrews, we read this passage just a week or two ago, where it says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, that we should fix our eyes on Jesus, who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. In other words, saying, yeah, I see the shame. I know I'm going to be hung up there with next to nothing on and maybe nothing on. And I know people are going to hurl insults at me. And I know people are going to spit at me. And I know this is going to happen to me. But I, I will take that shame. I will take that shame for you. And I will give you my honor. That's grace. We don't deserve it. But we receive it when we trust Jesus. It is the way of the kingdom. Honor is not a high priority for everyone. And that's very sad. I mean, some place too much value upon that which is shameful to even think of pursuing honor. I pray that God will turn their hearts. Some have tried and failed to be honorable and just given up on it. I just can't win this battle. I'm just going to have to live this way with all my shame. Some seem to have never been interested in honor at all. I pray that God will open their eyes. But I trust that you, if you've been tracking with this sermon today, recognize the importance of honor. It's a big deal in the kingdom. And I want to pray that you would realize that perfect honor will never come from you. It will only come through Christ. And he offers it to you freely when you trust him. He takes away not just your guilt, he takes away your shame. And he gives you his honor. And then that you will recognize that he leads you in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. What he's saying there is, so that my honor is not corrupted. And he'll do that for you. He's your savior. He's your sanctifier. I want to pray that you would have a profound awareness of that. If you're comfortable doing so, would you please stand as we pray? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we recognize the importance of honor. And when we look at Jesus, that's all we see. A man in whom there was nothing shameful. Everything about him is honorable. We recognize that he offers that to us. He offers to change our position from shameful to honorable. And he does this because of his grace the golden thread that he will weave through this entire Sermon on the Mount, the golden thread that goes throughout the entire of Scripture, entirety of Scripture. We thank you for that grace. We thank you that as we trust Jesus and his death to cover for our sins, having turned from our sins and placed our faith in him, 
we receive his righteousness and our guilt is gone and we receive his honor and our shame is gone. Oh God, thank you for that divine exchange. Thank you for erasing all my shame, all my shame. And thank you for leading us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. That is not because you are selfish. That is because you value honor. And you want us to have the experience of living lives that honor you. Do it by the presence of your spirit in our life for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.